You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. This series is miscellaneous episodes from Douglas's website. Today's lesson is on dragons and the Bible. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. You're about to listen to a podcast on dragons. What kind of dragons? Fire-breathing flying dragons such as the one killed by St. George? Or is this Puff the Magic Dragon a more friendly dragon? Although, if this is related to drug usage, I don't know if that is such a great children's song. No, we're actually going to be looking at dragons in the Bible. We're all familiar with reptiles, like turtles, snakes. As a little boy in the woods of Florida, saw plenty of snakes, and I think I ran away from plenty of snakes. Not uh, particularly squeamish around serpents today. Spiders I still don't really care for, but snakes I'm okay with. Maybe you're just the opposite. We're going to focus now not just on reptiles, but really big reptiles. In fact, frighteningly large, but fortunately mythological ones. Mythology? Are you saying that the Bible has mythology in it? Well, in a way, yes, I am. Yet, as we will see, this mythology is not endorsed. It's just hijacked. It's used for a purpose quite contrary to its original purpose. Mythical creatures in the Bible. What do you mean? You mean like unicorns? I hear that some Bibles mention unicorns. They're in the King James Bible. Well, that's true. They are. Nine times in the King James Bible. You'll find the cockatrice, half rooster, half snake. You'll find that in the King James Bible. The truth is the translators weren't really sure how to render the Hebrew word tzephah. Poisonous serpent or viper. That's what it is. But back then, in England, in the 1600s, a lot of people believed in cockatrices. They believed in satyrs. Half man, half goat. And satyrs are mentioned dozens of times in Scripture. Dragons, 34 times in the King James Bible. Now, you won't find it in modern Bibles with that kind of frequency. And you won't find any uh, unicorns. Uh, I hope that doesn't disappoint you. But we still have dragons in the book of Revelation. In fact, huge red dragons in the sky, Revelation 12 and 13 and and so forth. Let me remind us, I just want to make sure at the beginning here that we're not going to be looking down on, on those who four centuries ago believed in unicorns and dragons. Because the, the great Biblical manuscripts had not yet been discovered. This is way before the papyrus finds in Egypt or the Dead Sea Scrolls. And their knowledge of Hebrew and Greek was not as strong. And even the the understanding of, of culture and the mythology of the peoples with whom God's people competed, this was not understood so well. And another reason we shouldn't look down on them it's not other than the fact that they didn't have the tools for understanding that we have today, um, is that we may actually be living at least sometimes 
in a bit of a King James world ourselves. In worship. One of the songs I really like to sing, Praise Ye the Lord, it's based on Psalm 148 in the King James. And that version, uh, it's not just praise coming from young men and maidens and judges all. Praise is commanded from fire and hail and snow and vapors and stormy winds, from creeping things and beast and cattle. In Psalm 148, not only that, it's commanded from dragons and floods. Floods or deeps. In the ancient world, they believed that there was a a primeval ocean under the earth. There was an ocean above the earth. How it got divided into two, we'll return to in just a moment. But that's in Psalm 148. And if you read it, and maybe you're uh, using Bible.com, and then remember, oh, wow, that's what we sing probably at least once a month, that beautiful song. And I think we always have to ask ourselves, do I believe what I'm singing? What are the implications of this? So Psalm 148 is is wonderful, but it reflects the ancient cosmology, which was held on to, certainly, uh, still in the 1500s and 1600s. There are plenty of people uh, who embrace that. But And as I said, in, in more modern versions, you won't find all these references to dragons, not the number in the King James, but there's still a handful. And not only that, references to constellations like Orion and the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, which we find in Amos and Job. We have uh, constellations, but that suggests astrology, doesn't it? I mean, there's a story behind all of these, whether it's Hercules or Orion, uh, Ursa Major, the, uh, the big bear, Ursa Minor, the little bear. Now, do I believe in the constellation Leo? Do I believe that there's a lion up there? Well, I am a Leo because I'm born in the first half of August. Oh, so Douglas, you do believe in astrology? No. Listen to my astrology podcast. I do not. Anytime I'm referring to the Zodiac, uh, I'll guarantee you it's, it's to make a point or it's in jest, not because I believe in the stuff. What about astrology in the Bible, the constellations? I'd like to actually read part of the passage in Job. Uh, This is in Job 9. And Job replies about God's power and how he speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine. He alone stretches out the heavens. And then uh, 9.9, he is the maker of the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When it says that God is the maker of the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, is that endorsing the mythology that's behind that astrology? I mean, I think we understand now that constellations may kind of look like the thing it's supposed to look like, though often I have a hard time seeing it, to be honest. Maybe it's not just the city lights either. But these stars are not necessarily grouped together. If you're actually looking at star systems that are near one another, a lot of these constellations, it's, it's really it's quite a bit of chance. Uh, they just happen to be in front of each other. Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll be in our galaxy, of course. You, you wouldn't be seeing constellations uh, in other galaxies, but in, in the Milky Way. So 
Was there a bear and a hunter? I think the scripture is telling us that God is the creator of everything. So when you look up, don't settle for a different story. God is the ultimate creator. But this passage in Job goes on and it says some stuff that's really interesting. God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with them? How can I find words to argue with him? And because we may be unfamiliar with the language, we either skip the passage or we skim it. Either way, it doesn't register. The cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Cohorts is a military reference. It's talked about some primeval or cosmic battle. But cohorts of Rahab? Rahab the innkeeper? You mean Rahab the prostitute, as in Jericho? It's a different word. Rahab is not what you think. and It's certainly not that Rahab, the prostitute, ended up becoming a constellation or something like this. What is going on? In ancient mythology, Rahab is a monster. Rahab signifies chaos. And you'll find this Rahab, Rahab in Psalms, in Isaiah, in Job. Now, there's some notes with the podcast. Uh, that's where I'll put all the references so we don't get bogged down. But let me just read a couple of these to make the point. Isaiah 51, 9. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? So Rahab is a monster who's cut into pieces. And immediately he talks about drying up the sea. There's one ancient story which Genesis rejects that in the primeval battle, Tiamat, this huge dragon, was slain, and the bottom part became the earth, the upper part was heaven, and there was a separation. Or the Canaanites, those who believed in Baal, 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 they believed that the god of the sea, or Yam, was vanquished by Baal. In Genesis, it's God who brings order, cosmos, out of chaos. And it's God who separates, he puts this division, uh, and he puts a firmament so that the waters are separated. And the biblical cosmology of the waters above the heavens, you have the waters below. And of course, you have the floodgates that occasionally open up and get everyone wet. Notice the connection not only between uh, the death of Rahab and the vanquishing of the sea at the creation, but also the reference to the Exodus. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Well, in Exodus 14, God's people walk right through the sea. The sea is vanquished. They don't have to be afraid of Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's army. That's, I just read two verses of Isaiah 51. We need the background if we're going to appreciate these passages. Okay, 
The next one comes from Job 26. This is a passage that, uh, again, it's it's a figurative, it's poetic. If we take it literally, we're going to be in big trouble. But if we'll let it speak for itself, I think we'll get it. For example, it says that God marked out the horizon on the face of the waters. Well, that's clearly referring back to Genesis. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. Heaven actually doesn't have pillars, but it's a colorful way of putting it. If the pillars are shaking, the heavens quake because of fear of God, he must be truly terrible, august, sovereign, fearful, um, powerful. The pillars of the heavens quake. This is the language of poetry. The very next verse. By his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. There it is again. It's the dragon. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? So once again, we have this connection between the slaying of Rahab and control over the creation. And Rahab is called a gliding serpent. There's your snake. There's your dragon. Poetry, figurative language, can be applied in ways we never even realized. Rahab is Egypt. In the book of Isaiah, it is? Yes. In fact, often empires and emperors who set themselves up against God and his people, who don't recognize that God is the king of kings, it's when humans think that they are something special, and they take a stand against the Lord and his anointed one, then the emperor And the empire may be signified by an animal, but usually a fantastical kind of animal, a beast. We see that in Revelation. We see it in Daniel. We see this in Zechariah. We see this all over. So let me read uh, from um, Isaiah 30. Egypt is that unprofitable nation. Egypt, whose help is utterly useless, therefore I called her Rahab the (laughs) do-nothing. There's the memorable language. Well, why would Isaiah be telling God's people, that Egypt will not be a useful source of reliance because people were tempted, instead of repenting and trusting the Lord as the the powers of Assyria and Babylon threatened them, they were tempted to go back to Egypt or at least to make a treaty with Egypt, to trust in a political alliance with Pharaoh. And Of course, there are many Pharaohs. Isaiah says multiple times, don't do that. Don't put your trust in foreign powers or politics. Uh, This is misguided. The Lord is sufficiently powerful. And then you can even see, it almost sounds like the name, a child calling another child a name on the playground. I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab the do-nothing. And I suppose in Hebrew, it's more catchy than it is in English. But notice the application of the name of this beast to a political power. Psalm 89. Who's like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty. Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, 
you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. Oh, this passage, and it's one of those passages about the monarchy and the, the line of David, and ultimately God intervenes, and we will see better days. It's, it's highly messianic. But Rahab, uh, Rahab's destruction is the scattering of God's enemies. When God redeems his people and vanquishes his enemies, it's as though uh, the dragon is killed all over again. And you, you caught also the reference to the surging sea. Over and over in scripture, the raging sea, the seething, bubbly cauldron of this ominous, dark, threatening ocean is controlled, is calmed by the Lord. Or think of Jesus calming the sea when his disciples are quivering in fear. Ah, but there's more in Psalm 89. The heavens are yours, yours also the earth. You founded it. And then it says, you created north and south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy at your name. Now, these are not monsters, but these are mountains, talking mountains. They're not really talking mountains, but uh, Tabor and Hermon sing for joy. We find these kinds of things, the hills clapping their hands. We find uh, mountains joyful. We find talking trees. We find all kinds of things in the Bible. But when you understand that it's poetic, and the point is always focused on who God is, then we don't get hung up on the background, the mythology, or these terms that are brought in. To be very careful when we read scripture, particularly poetry, which is one-third of the Bible, not to incorrectly interpret. Now, Psalm 74, another passage where we have the destruction of God's enemies in vision. What's happened, of course, is that the prophetic warnings have been ignored. The Assyrians and then the Babylonians have come, and what was left of the original kingdom of Israel is just totally destroyed. Even Jerusalem and especially the temple. The Babylonian soldiers pour into the temple and it describes them here as uh, men wielding axes, cutting through a thicket of trees, smashing, smashing the carved paneling, burning the sanctuary to the ground, defiling the dwelling place of your name. It's a very uh, sad picture. And the enemy are enjoying it. In fact, they said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. And they burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. I don't know if that's referring to high places or synagogues. I'm not really sure in the 500s BC. But we cannot imagine how upsetting, how emotionally crippling it was for the heart of the nation, Jerusalem, the the holy temple, uh, to be destroyed the impact that had on, on, on God's people, being mocked, uh, losing all, it seem, seemingly losing all the promises made to the patriarchs. But this passage continues. How long will the enemy mock you, God? In, in this case, it's the Babylonians. Will they revile you forever? Well, the answer is no. And I want you to see how the psalm continues. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. My God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke 
the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. Okay. Um, Leviathan. Yeah, I've heard of that before. I, I thought that was a whale or something. Well, you know, if you if you're talking about a, a, a tremendously fearsome sea monster, then it would be very appropriate to apply that to a whale. But what's this psalm actually saying? It's not a whale, because this monster has multiple heads. It was you who split open the sea by your power and broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Heads, not head. Now, just as Baal establishes kingship by overcoming the sea, who's called Yam, the same Hebrew word as sea. Of course, in Genesis, everything's demythologized. No created um, aspect of our, of our world is divine. Not the sun, not the moon, not the stars, not the sea, nothing. Um, in Genesis 1, the waters above are separated from the waters below. In the ancient mythology, the dragon was cut in two, becoming heaven and earth. I want to enlist the help of a, a very brilliant man, a scholar of the Old Testament named John Willis. According to Ugaritic mythology, now I know what most of you are thinking, Ugaritic? Okay, that is the language of the Canaanites. And the mythology, that is all the gods and goddesses and their way of explaining their world, is Ugaritic language and perspective, okay? So according to the Ugaritic mythology, the god Baal broke the seven-headed monster Lotan with a magic club. So the Canaanites had Baal. Remember the one that they uh, prayed to on Mount Carmel while Elijah made fun of them? Baal kills the seven-headed monster, Lotan. It's like the Hydra in Greek. But Hebrew, Leviathan, it's the same. The authors of Psalm 74 affirm that it was the Lord, not Marduk or Baal. Marduk was the king of the gods in Babylon. Not Marduk or Baal who created the world. It was he who divided the sea, who broke the heads of the dragons on the waters, who crushed the heads of Leviathan. In other words, it was he who brought order out of chaos. Genesis 1. He made the waters covering the earth recede, caused the dry land to appear, made the various waterways on earth. He made the sun and the moon as luminaries for day and night, and he established a season, summer and winter. All of that is in Psalm 74. Willis is helping us because he's, he's telling us the ancient view. And without that background, honestly, uh, a lot of passages of the Old Testament wouldn't make sense. And even those that I thought I understood would have made far less sense than they should. But once we know just a little bit of historical background, things come into clarity and we have no excuse for skipping or skimming. Now we can read them. Leviathan. Leviathan is found in Job 3, 31, uh, at the end of Job, in Job 41. And I've had, I've had people email me and say, it's a dinosaur. Well, the problem with that is it seems to be fire breathing. <laughs> Others would say, it's a whale. No, it's a crocodile. It's a hippopotamus. People go to Starbucks and they're having an argument. Uh, is it a fantastical beastie or is it a, a large prehistoric or maybe an extinct animal? But Leviathan is mentioned in Isaiah 27. In Psalm 74, Psalm 104, and, and in Job. See, the point that's being made is not zoological. It's, politi it's political or, or theological, not zoological. Let, let me explain that. 
We're not talking about some yet-to-be-discovered species, and maybe we'll find its bones one day. No. These beings don't exist. You mean they're just in people's imagination? Uh, No. What they're thinking of exists, and that's enemies of God. They're very real. But it's under the guise uh, of uh, a fantastic kind of uh, animal. And often the, the beast will, it's something that couldn't, couldn't possibly exist. Multiple heads, multiple horns. I mean, read Daniel, read the book of Revelation and you'll see. So it's not about zoology, it's about theology. And often it's political. It's about who's really wielding power. And it's not the Egyptians or the Canaanites. It's not the Babylonians or the Romans. It's God. When we understand the idolaters' background of the Roman Empire, who are poised to really hurt the Christians as they move into the second century, Revelation 12, 13, 16, 20, we have the primeval sea monster. We have pre-creation chaos threatening yet again. But Yahweh is more powerful still. See, the enemy is portrayed as a serpent, this huge red dragon in the sky, Revelation 12. But that serpent will not overcome. God will overcome. Be on the right side. You say, but you mean there's no literal dragon in the sky? Now, I know it's a little tricky because you'd say, well, what about the, the, the serpent in Genesis 3? We have the talking snake. Are we rejecting that? No, I'm not rejecting the fall of man. I'm not rejecting the, the point of the story of Adam and Eve. But whether you take the snake as a literal being is no more important than whether you take the dragon as a literal being in Revelation 12. The enemy of God is, uh, is portrayed as a serpent. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But whether these things are literal or not is irrelevant. The point is that the true God alone is sovereign. Does this bother you? Does it make you feel uneasy, or did it just not sit right with you that the Bible would would use pagan sources and references to mythology? I mean, Leviathan and Rahab, what's going on here? Uh, John Willis will just say a few more things. It is not surprising to find these poets borrowing language from neighboring peoples to convey truths about God, because this is done elsewhere in the Old Testament, like Psalm 89, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 51, and in the New Testament. Paul's quotations from the pagan writers in Acts 17, 1 Corinthians 15, or Titus 1. And actually, John Willis is only giving us a few examples. The Bible does this all the time. And so what are the conclusions to draw from our study of dragons? Well, first, and and this can help you with uh, skeptics, maybe you're a university student. If anyone ever tells you the Bible's mythological, you say, no, it's the opposite. In the ancient days, when everyone believed that the sun was a god, the sun is portrayed as not a god, just part of the creation. And on and on it goes. The Bible does not accept the mythology of the ancient world. It rejects it. And that's the first point. And yet it's actually more complicated than that because, two, ancient mythology has been pressed into service. It's been co-opted, not for superstition, but for serious theology. So people were already thinking this way. They, they have part of their mental furniture. It includes dragons. And what the Old Testament does is it tells them who really has the power. So it's been pressed into service, not accepted, not endorsed. But these old stories have been, in a sense, rewritten. 
or serious theology, three, we need not fear or let ourselves be manipulated by the enemies of God, whether they are foreign powers uh, or monstrous dictators or monstrous ideologies. And I'm always aware because I travel a lot, many of my brothers and sisters in the world are in countries under regimes that are unfair, uh, incredibly biased, and sometimes very negative towards Bible believers. Um, and it's, it's hard. But, but this is exactly when these highly poetic or apocalyptic passages in the Bible come to life and have their greatest meaning. We understand that the dictators of the world are animals. They are beasts. It is cosmic. There is something diabolic going on here, but we don't need to be afraid. For when we are fearful, that is, the deep waters of our lives are churning up and we're afraid we're going to drown or go back to chaos, or we're fearful that this totalitarian regime is going to do us in, or our lives are piling up around us, and we don't know when we're afraid, we need to remember that he, Yahweh, is the one who vanquished our primeval waters. He was the victor. He alone. We remember the story because five, and finally here, we can be confident. How can we be so sure? How can we be so confident? Because Yahweh is the true dragon slayer. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.